Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. And creating a new product starts with excitement and the thrill of doing something different, right? It's that rush of the moment of being part of something new. The launch of the product is surrounded by cheers. It's also a really exciting time. And for many product managers, it is the best part of their work. But what happens in between, between the project start and the launch, that's where the really hard work occurs. It is the messy middle, full of rocky terrain that is woefully underestimated and misunderstood. The Messy Middle is also the name of a new book by my guest, Scott Belsky. Scott is the chief product officer of Adobe and founder of Behance, the leading creative network used by more than 12 million professionals. Scott has guided many teams through the messy middle of new product projects and ventures. In the interview, we'll address a few of the topics from this book, including build your narrative before your product, make one subtraction for every edition, do the work that needs to get done even if it's not your job, and identify what you're willing to be bad at. You'll find the summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 196. That's where the written notes are for you to review, as well as the links we talk about in the interview. Now, to the discussion. Scott, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Oh, thrilled to be here. So you have this interesting new book, but first I want to, before we dive into that, I want to talk about your role, because I'm sure Everyday Innovators listening might be interested in what a chief product officer at Adobe is involved in. Can you, you give us a summary of that? Sure. Well, my obsession for many years has been building products and building product teams and helping always kind of seek increased empathy with the customer and the customer experience. Um, Adobe is a large company with many different products that uh, serve large, you know, a large part of the creative world. And, um, and I also think that there is a, uh, there's a, a new generation ahead of us of products um, that serve a new generation of creatives that we're now uh, in the process of building. Uh, the company's never had a chief product officer. And, um, and so I started this role about nine months ago after having a previous history with the company to, uh, to help chart the course. What brought that role about? Is it this seeing that there's going to be a change in kind of the, the customer composition? And want to be more responsive to that? Yeah, well, you know, I had a history of the company in the mm-hmm. sense that Adobe acquired Behance in 2012, the business that I had started many years ago, and then um, at three years there. And um, and what I what I what I noticed was that there were a few uh, exciting things happening at the same time. On a very short term level, there was the opportunity to make the products more accessible to more people. With the change of Adobe's business model, the company went from software to relatively inexpensive services. Um, now that that opened the funnel by a large amount. A lot of new types of people came in that weren't necessarily pros hmm. and then would open our tools and not really know what to do next. Right. And so the opportunity to make them easier to use and then the opportunity to also bring them into the cloud so they can be more collaborative. And then over the long term, exploring new mediums like augmented reality, voice interfaces, uh, uh, that sort of thing was also a real exciting thing for me. So I think when you find a new role, as a product person that excites you both in the short term and in the long term, it's something you have to uh, really spend time considering. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it also is a statement about the commitment Adobe sees in making product focused on customer more visible if creating a new position like this. For sure. Thanks for sharing that. And your book, The Messy Middle, Finding Your Way Through the Hardest and Most Crucial Part of Any Bold Venture. So I love the title. Why did you write that and who did you write it for? Well, the book is really an outcome of about six or so years of jotting down insights observed in the boardroom of companies that I've been on the board of um, with entrepreneurs that I've invested in and worked with over the years, whether it be teams that have gone through tremendous volatility at companies like Pinterest or Uber or Warby Parker or Periscope, it's not a part of Twitter, um, as well as my own journey as an entrepreneur, bootstrapping for five years, venture back for two years, getting acquired by a big company. And I realized uh, as both as an entrepreneur, as an executive, and as an investor, I had insights into what people were doing in the middle of bold projects that either worked for them or against them. And I also began to develop an opinion about those quote-unquote best practices that may actually be the right thing at one stage of the journey and then the absolute wrong thing at Mm -hmm. another stage of the journey. And so this book is really bringing a lot of those insights together for navigating that extreme volatility that uh, people must endure uh, during any sort of any any bold creative project or new venture or building a product, you know, within a big mm-hmm. company and not having a clear end in sight. And as many listeners know, it does get messy in the middle. And uh, I, I think we can relate <laughs> to that title. And I like what you also shared about your own experience led you to developing an opinion of best practices and when those practices should be applied. And I think that's a key problem we run into is we hear about things that we should do, but then they get applied at the wrong time in the the life journey of creating a product or creating a new venture. And it just really messes us up more than helps us. And it's messy. Totally. And I think that goes for how to build a team, Mm -hmm. but also just how to craft products. And I think, you know, a lot of your listeners know that it's, you know, it's, um, I mean, just one little example that I think everyone will relate to is um, building products. You think about the new customers that come in and how to accommodate their needs and orientate them. That first mile experience that is so critical to mm. get new customers into the product. And then you nail it. and You're like, okay, we've got this figured out. That's a lot of work. Let's move on. But actually, what most product leaders learn, sometimes the hard way, is that your next cohort of new customers is different than the one before it. Right. And so you actually have to cut, keep reinventing and reinterpreting that first mile experience to get those new cohorts of customers engaged. And that's just one of the many insights from the product section. I'm so glad you shared that insight. And that's such an important one. I hope uh, everybody innovators got that one, that the first group that comes in for a new product might be very different than what we see the next time around in the next cohort there. And uh, they need to be addressed differently and maybe onboarded differently, especially for a SaaS product. Lots of lessons that you have in the book, earned through great experience. wanted to pull some of those out and ask you to uh, tell us some more details. The first one that caught my attention is that you need to build a narrative early. And I love, in general, the idea of story and how we communicate through story. But what do you mean by building the narrative early, even before you build, start really thinking about building the product? In this section, I, um, I talk about uh, a few different things. You know, The first thing is I encourage a lot of product teams before they even start building their product, to put together their the mock-up of their splash page for the product, which really challenges them to boil down like a real value proposition to the customer. You know, what is the pithy headline? Is it concrete enough? Is it focused enough and narrow enough? And then also 
what are the key types of screenshots or, you know, or, or, or sample or videos of the product in action would you want to show to a customer in his or her first 15 seconds experiencing your brand? Mm. And that exercise oftentimes helps develop a narrative that becomes almost like a compass when it comes to prioritizing features, knowing what to do first, and identifying those like two or three magic moments of a product that you think will really activate a customer, you know, not just get them in the door and start using, but really activated and engaged with your product. So that's, that's like one kind of, you know, uh, insight from that section that I encourage all teams to do. Another thing that I talk about is um, actually Garrett Camp, the co-founder of Uber and StumbleUpon and a number of other different companies now part of his, um, his incubator Expa. And what, and what Garrett always does and, and has done over the years is he, he really crafts kind of the, the message and even the brand and sometimes even the icon of the, of the, uh, or the logo just because he wants to kind of know who this product will be speaking to. And a good example that I give is when he was playing around with the idea of Uber um, before it was even founded as a company, he was debating between this notion of, is it everyone's private driver? Meaning, does it look exclusive and, uh, and almost um, you know, inexpensive? Does it have that air of, of, of exclusivity that people aspire to have? Or, or is the narrative more like, you know, uh, taxis on demand, you know, which is sort of like for everyone and, and somewhat commoditized and accessible to everyone. And he was kind of debating even before they were on the process of building the product, you know, which type of message are we sending? And that decision really dictated a lot of other decisions in both the brand, the product, the design. You know, ultimately, the team chose everyone's private driver. And that made the, you know, the logo was like, black and looking like high-end exclusive type of thing and and um, it really you know set the tone and so you kind of have to develop the narrative a little bit beforehand in order to have that compass and i think that helps you think through so many dimensions of the product that we need early on like who is that ideal customer that we're targeting to and what's the key aspects of the problem that we're solving for them i'm sure you've ran into amazon's practice with their product managers of having to have written out the press release of the product even before you start diving into developing it and yeah. create quite a bit of written narrative yep. in their process. That's a great example. Cool. And sure. thanks for sharing the Uber example too. That really shapes how we think about a lot of the decisions and having that foundation is pretty important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. You're one place to become a product master. TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. 
Another piece of advice you share is if you're going to add additions, also make subtractions. Talk to us more about that one. Yeah, I, I introduced one of the product sections by talking about how obviously simplicity is hard to achieve and even harder to sustain. And, um, and why is that? And then I talk about some of the practices that teams go through in order to preserve simplicity. And listen, it sounds easy to do, but as we all know, in the throes of the volatility of the messy middle, when you have problems that are in your product you to solve urgently, or when you have customer requests and you feel it's an urgency to fit as many of them in as possible, we oftentimes deal with those decisions by adding complexity. And you know that, that, that lends itself to what I like to call the, the product life cycle, which is that customers flock to a simple product because it's simpler than anything they've ever seen before. The product takes those that influx of new users for granted and starts to add complexity by listening to them and trying to get more of them or keep more of them or whatever until it becomes complicated. And then what happens? Customers flock to simple products. And that's like the product life cycle that seems to happen over and over. And so I guess one of the questions is like, how can you defy that? And one of the interesting things I've seen teams do, and, and I used to do this or still try to do this as well, is when you're adding a new feature, Ask yourself, is there another feature that's already live in the product that you would immediately trade out for this feature? Um, you know, is there something that people just aren't using a lot that you're much less excited about than the new thing that you're building? And then the question is, would you consider killing it? Knowing that the more options a customer has, obviously, the more divided their energy and attention will be, and the less they will engage with the things that make the most impact for them. And so sometimes when you do this exercise, it's like, no, actually, that is a critical feature for some subset or whatever. But sometimes you actually say, let's just kill it. You know, let's just really focus attention on the core, um, the core part of the product here. And a couple of examples from Behance, we used to have a groups functionality where creatives come in and join a, a, a member-driven group and discuss something that was in their region or in their industry. We also had what's called a tip exchange where people could actually post tips for each other and you know, insights or, or best practices for managing clients and just sort of had a, had a vibrant exchange of information. Both of these were interesting and used features within our business and in our product. However, we killed both of them because we realized that the core of Behance was building projects and building a portfolio. And, um, and, and when we killed both of these, we found an uplift in the utilization of the core project creation tool in the, in the, in the sites. And so that's just one example. Yeah. And, and again, back to your advice about knowing what to do when uh, you tied this to the product life cycle. And I think this is an area that we really struggle with as product managers. You know, it, if we have a successful product already in place, we've dealt with some of these issues, you know, trying to find that core functionality. But now we have pressure from customers that want new capabilities, right, as they're using it. And we also have that pressure from our leadership team that's just wanting to see us as the product managers move the product forward. And at times, we make those decisions that are the easy ones to make. Like, okay, customers asking for this, we'll just put it in. And at some point, like you said, customers leave us because the product becomes too complicated and they move to the next thing that, that is simpler. That Those are really hard decisions to make. They are. And, you know, one of the little tricks is to ground yourself or keep some percentage of your team's energy, 20, 30%, always focus on that newest user's experience because then you don't get too drunk on your own product and you start to remember 
that's someone brand new coming in who's never seen any of this before, who is less of an early adopter and more of a pragmatist user. Um, they're going to come in and they're going to look at all the stuff that has accumulated over the past two years for power users, and they're just not going to know what to do. Right. And so if you can keep grounding yourself with that person's experience, you know, that's a really, uh, a really good thing to do. Yeah. And this isn't just technical debt in the creation of a software product. This is the customer experience debt with being overwhelmed by the complexity. Right. Two important things for us to think about and make some of those hard decisions about what's most important for them. Absolutely. Okay. Some really good insights. I particularly like that tip of having part of your team focused on that new customer experience and staying close to that and keeping the product solving the core issue. Another piece of uh, advice in the book you shared, uh, one, one of my pet issues when I've heard people tell me this when I've been in teams, when they say, uh, well, that's not my job. Mm-hmm. You're, you get asked to do something and say, that's not your job. Well, aren't we all working towards success together? And so there's going to be times that we do things that are contributing to, towards that success that we may not have done before. What's your perspective on this? Where have you heard it in your own experience and experience on projects? Well, it's funny. It's funny. In my experience, some of the greatest work uh, is done by people doing work that they don't have to do. Mm. Um, it's it's people within teams who say, hey, you know, I'm the product person, but I just don't like the way the splash page remarketing is being done. And uh, I'm just going to actually take it upon myself to propose a new way of doing it and just share it, even without asking for credit, because this is the way I think it should be done. Uh, because then what you have is people who have a slightly different vantage point, again, who have like a, in some ways, a, 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 an appropriately fresh, uh, you know, un, un, unobscured or untainted perspective that are lending them their, their creativity and their insights to someone whose job it is or to the team as a whole. Um, and it's, it's people like that. It's these people who care indiscriminately about the ultimate experience they're building for customers that I think move teams forward the most. And it's because it's a, maybe because you have to almost pass a certain threshold of passion around the problem in order to insert yourself and take that initiative. And so sometimes it's a real gem that you're about to propose to the team. But again, easy to say, hard to do, because if you have a job, that job is likely enough to keep you busy. And so this takes extra initiative. Um, you may not get recognized for it. In fact, you may get some some um, some sort of uh, you know hard uh, hard time from your colleagues for it because suddenly you're encroaching on their terrain, which also means you have to have a culture that invites everyone to contribute to everything. Mm-hmm. Not that everyone has to be in every meeting, but that everyone should be uh, invited to contribute their insights to anyone else's function. And actually, it's a cultural thing that you can state to your team. You can say, "Hey, it's possible." that some of the insights for solutions are beyond the job function in this team. Obviously, we want to have a culture where people feel not only entitled, but encouraged to proactively share them. And, um, and then you have to reward those folks. Uh, and this is what a leader has to do in a great product team is look around and say, who are the people who are doing work they don't have to do? And I want to make sure that those folks feel rewarded for it because oftentimes a great out of left field insight that becomes all the difference and, and, and sobers us to some reality or some, some solution we weren't seeing um, 
that's essential and these people make it happen. Right. And that is a very big part of a culture experience. And some of us have been in cultures where the opposite happens, right? Or the tall, tall piece of, of corn, maybe in the cornfield standing up with everyone else and you get cut off because you were sticking your nose in some place where others did appreciate it in the spirit of trying to make something better. And in some cultures where people are bringing their own perspectives, that is where more value is created. You talked about the, the fresh vantage point. Mm-hmm. And I think for many of us, we kind of get stuck in our own assumptions at times. And it's when someone comes in and looks at the problem from a completely different perspective that that really adds energy to us being able to create value for the customer. 100%. Lots of good insights in there, being able to have that fresh perspective. Excellent. Okay. So another one that stood out was identifying what you're willing to be bad at. And you know, I think as a new venture leader, this certainly comes into play, but as product managers too, helping a guide or product team, this comes into play. Curious about the circumstances that you've encountered where this uh, first came up for you, where you learned this one. Something that every team needs to ask themselves because it's impossible to get, it's impossible to get everything. Right. Um, and, uh, and yet we try. I mean, intuitively, we think, oh, we want to we want to be the most competitive with the most potential players in this space. And so we're just going to try to be good at everything. And as a result, sometimes you are okay enough at everything, but not great at any one particular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the in this in this section, I cite the the uh, a case study that I went did around Southwest Airlines and how they kind of mapped out all the values that their customers have for airlines. And it's usually things like service, price, route quality of food, um, safety, of course. And they said, okay, which ones of those, which of those do we want to win on? And they said, okay, we obviously want to have safety and we want to have best price and best service, but we don't care about things like food and we don't care about things like routes. So we're not going to like optimize to cover the entire United States, but the routes that we have, we want to be the cheapest and the best service. And that really was their, their strategy and path to success and how they differentiated them from themselves from everyone who is sort of like a, a national carrier. Um, and, and I think that's a good example. And it's the kind of thing we have to look at our products and think about, you know, um, whether it's, you know, the answer was across verticals, which ones do we want to dominate in? Uh, we really, we felt strongly about design and every sort of visual type of creative work. Um, but we did not want to uh, evolve our products to accommodate literary work. Uh, and then when it came to video and filmmakers, we saw companies like Vimeo that were really, uh, really leading the pack. And we said, you know what? Do we need to be the best at that and and make our product the lowest common denominator for everyone? Or should we just really focus on the more project displayed multiple image or multiple pieces of media type of formats? And we chose the latter. Um, so I think that it's just important also to be known for something. I, um, I actually had a pitch from a team yesterday that was, building something around creative collaborations and they, I saw them falling into that trap where they didn't want to narrow themselves in any way. And I was trying to tell them from a customer's viewpoint, no one knows who you're actually serving. Like, I don't know if you're right for me because it's too vague. You're trying to be too accommodating and thus not alluring to any particular person. I think that's a a big problem. I also have my university teacher hat on and teach graduate courses. And often people really struggle with this idea of trying to niche down their audience and their concern about, well, we're going to leave out all these possible people that would find value in our product. And instead, the issue is they're never going to be attracted to your product because you're not going to slice through the noise. Right. And a simple thing like if my car starts having problems and it turns out to be the transmission, 
I'm not going to take it to my general mechanic. I'm going to go find the transmission place in town that does a really good job of transmissions. <laughs> One other funny little uh, example I give is the classic uh, New York City deli. Um, if you ever walk around New York City, you'll notice that there's these delis that claim to do sushi and pizza, Italian, <laughs> and Chinese food, and salad bar, and everything else. And you look and you're like, how could that be any any good at any one particular <laughs> type of food? Yeah, doesn't um, it scare you? <laughs> uh, yeah, it does a little bit. So um, that's that's a good example as well. This is not a place Gordon Ramsay would ever step foot into. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that ties back to your advice on the, if you're going to add something, also try to, to subtract something, right? Be careful, know what you're going to focus on. And the Southwest Airlines example is so good, right? That that ties in, into that whole space of the, the blue ocean kind of literature, the research there. But identify the dimensions that are create value for the customer and then select those that you can excel on and differentiate yourself in a competitive environment. Yep. And Southwest did that pretty well. They did. Excellent. There's one other dimension that wasn't in your book, but I thought this was just interesting. When there's a messy middle, and when we're in a project and we're trying to get through it, it just it does get hard. And there is an aspect of kind of personal transformation that takes place because we just evolve as people too, and the team involves. And I was thinking of the hero's journey as I was looking through uh, these different topics in, the, in your book. My favorite example of the hero's journey is Luke Skywalker, probably because I like sci-fi too. Luke is someone who wants to be a Jedi. He doesn't really think he's good enough. He has people in his life telling him he's not. But then he gets the opportunity. He meets Obi-Wan, who kind of is his mentor, calls him to be trained. And, you know, there's this moment of transformation in his life. He becomes the hero. And I think in a real aspect, all of us are in some kind of transformation in some aspect of of our life at times. And doubt is a big part of that journey for product managers in the messy middle, right? Are we actually going to create a product that can get delivered on time? Is it really going to satisfy the customers? Is it going to meet those profit expectations that the company has? And that all gets really challenging. I was just curious if any of that connects with your experience or what you kind of put together in the book. Because I kind of view the book, too, as one of these virtual guides to help us as product managers through that hero's journey, right? Through an element of transformation, helping us learn how to do a better job satisfying customers with products that they really care about. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great observation. I do think that a lot of the personal transformation happens in the moments that we uh, want to forget rather than those we choose to remember. And it's really, uh, and that's like, it comes down to those those deep valleys where everything kind of goes awry and you think that there's no end in sight and you're overwhelmed with self-doubt, ambiguity, uncertainty, working in complete anonymity. No one knows what you're doing. It's in those moments that you have those kind of growth realizations of how you want to govern, how you want to lead, how you want to make decisions. And that's why I always like to say that the, the, the middle, the messy middle is, is meant to be mined. You know, it's at, that, at those valleys, it's almost like if it's a series of very volatile valleys and peaks, you know, it's in those valleys when you're like kind of closest enough to the gems in the earth that you can dig a little deeper and grab something that then you take with you for the rest of your journey. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I very much identify with the, the, the notion of the hero's journey and the fact that at those, at those lows, you have to feel emboldened and encourage your team to mine something they can carry with them even though they'll want to just move on and forget about it because it's a very dreary place to be. And, uh, and at those peaks, it's kind of like you also have to keep, stay humble. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the 
a lot of great products go sideways when they suddenly have something working and they start to take for granted the fact that, uh, first of all, it wasn't all their skills that got them there. It might have been some luck and good timing and everything else. And, uh, and also, when you feel like everything's going great, you stop paying attention to competition and you stop feeling paranoid. And so there's some, you know, there's some benefit to carrying the, the, the mentality of enduring those lows that helps you optimize and thrive in the highs. Wow, a lot of good information there. One thing that stood out was just your use of the word paranoid, right? That as product managers, I think it is healthy for us to ha- be a little bit paranoid. If things are going great, what are we missing, right? That someone, yes. someone in the marketplace is taking action that we're missing or we're missing customer changes. And those dark times, gosh, that's so important. What a great reminder that there's growth in those struggles. When I'm working with people on leadership, sometimes I ask them to think about their worst leader experience they had, right? Who, who was a really bad leader that you were interacting with? And what did you learn from that? And often they have so much more to share about, wow, I learned all these things about how to be a good leader from that really bad experience as opposed to the great experience they had. And not as much comes out of that. That's a good reminder for Scott that we seem to learn in those dark times. Indeed, we do. <laughs> Excellent. So, so much good information. I do think your book is a good virtual mentor for us as part of our hero's journey to become better product managers and certainly recommend the messy middle to people. As listeners know, I love a good innovation quote and want to know what you had for us. And uh, if you could share that and explain it to us. It's something that I have uh, lived by for the last 10 years, being uh, not only trying to help build products myself, but also building products for creative people um, who are always looking for more ideas and more creativity and more innovation. And there's a whole industry that feeds any creative mind with more and more and more ideas. Um, and I just, uh, and it's, it's, it's been inspiring to me, but also sometimes frustrating that the most creative people, the last thing they need is more ideas. What they need is better execution and and it goes back to that Thomas Edison quote that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Right. And so I always like to remind teams that it's not about ideas. It's about making ideas happen. And, um, and that when you think about the types of people you want to hire and the type of um, culture you want to build, you know, how do you build a culture with a bias towards action? How do you really practice that notion that it isn't about ideas? It's about making ideas happen. Very important in creative environments. This one said, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's what you do with them that makes the difference. Right. Uh, love that quote. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm sure your teams have benefited from that one too. For your book, The Messy Middle, how can people find out more about that, get their hands on it? And if they want to connect with you, how can they make that happen? Well, The Messy Middle, is. Uh, I'm excited to say, is quite soon going to be available at a at any bookstore or uh, online outlet near you. So, uh it hits digital shelves on uh, very early October. So folks uh, who are listening to this, uh, it is probably already live. Yep. Um, and, um, and I, you know, and I, I hope that it just becomes a indispensable manual for folks. It was written to be more of a buffet than a, than a three course plated meal in the <laughs> sense that I want people to be able to jump to places where they, uh, where they need some prompts at the right time. And, uh, and that's really, uh, I think some of the early readers that I've given it to for feedback, that's where they say it's most useful. It's just those, those dreary parts of uh, building products and building teams where you need a little little dose of uh, some insights from others. So I also, I'm, I'm, I'm easy to reach. I'm on Twitter at, at Scott Belsky um, and, uh, and also Scott Belsky on LinkedIn. So I welcome folks to connect there as well. 
Thanks so much for the information for writing this book. I think we'll get good benefit from it and I appreciate your time with you sharing the insights today. Oh, thanks again. It was awesome. Thanks so much for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where you make your move from product manager to product master, gaining the influence and confidence you need to create products customers love. I hope you found that discussion with Scott valuable and the insights he shared and other resources are available at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 196. Those written notes are a great summary to review. Again, that's theeverydayinnovator.com slash 196. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.